from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. William Shakurdi holds a master's in public administration and worked in the budget office of Ohio State University, including being the chief financial officer before becoming an adjunct professor for the John Glenn School of Public Affairs. He served in Vietnam as an artillery officer, and this experience influenced him to write his book, Soldiering On in a Dying War, the true story of the Firebase Pace incidents and the Vietnam Drawdown. John F. Kilmartin, Jr. is a professor of military history at Ohio State University and a Vietnam War veteran who has taught history at the Air Force Academy, Rice University, and the Naval War College. He is the author of several books, including two on the Vietnam War, A Very Short War, and America and Vietnam, The 15-Year War. Welcome, gentlemen, to Writer's Talk. Thank you. Glad to be here. Good to be here. Thanks. Well, let's start off with uh, your book, and then we'll segue over and talk about yours. Um, this book, I have read that it's got its start six months after you came back from active duty, and uh, you saw a Washington Post front page article about the Pace incident that featured a watchtower that was similar to the watchtower at the uh, fire base where you had been stationed, and uh, it sparked your interest and got you interested in it. So. Flash forward a couple of years um, to this. Uh, how did it, uh, it took a, a number of years then yeah. for the book to come out. You've been investigating the whole time? What was the? Yeah, off and on. I, I actually was still on active duty, although I'd been back from Vietnam. I was stationed at Fort Meade and picked up the Washington Post, saw that picture, and read the article. And there were some things in the article that didn't, make, that didn't add up for me. Uh, the base looked the same, but it had a different name. They talked about American infantry providing security. When I was there, it was supposed to be a quiet area, so there were no infantry providing security. And the one thing that really caught my eye as an artillery officer is we were always taught you never, 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 ever abandon your guns in the face of the enemy. The evacuation of Pace was so quick, and it was by air, that they left the guns behind. And I thought that was really odd, and I want to know what it was about it. The reason it took so long, and originally I didn't have in, intend to write a book. I was just curious as to what this was about. And the more I got into it initially, the more questions it raised. The issue was, at that time, I was trying to get on with my life, and I had other things to do, too. I wanted to kind of wrap this up, but I really wanted to get on with things. So it was off and on for a while. But as I got older and I got more interested in it, um, it kind of it, it it almost compelled me to to try to find answers to these questions. Well, let's sketch out a little bit what happened um, to draw your interest in it at Firebase okay. Pace, and perhaps you're the best to to, to describe that because mm -hmm. that will lead us into the discussion of your book. So, what's yeah. your description of the incident that led to the Post article that led to a lot of what I think for you was sensationalist coverage mm -hmm. of a particular incident uh, in the Vietnam War? There was a line in that Washington Post article that I read that was right towards the end and. And uh, what the reporter uh, mentioned in covering it, that the initial reports of a mutiny at fire support base pace were incorrect. In fact, the press corrected that at the time. Mm -hmm. But he said in, in many ways it was a, a kind of a microcosm of the challenges facing the last Americans on the ground in Vietnam as the war wound down. And I said, boy, I could relate to that, having, having been through that. So I think that's what what kind of did. And then, so, all right, so if it wasn't a mutiny, what was it? Why were they pulled out so fast? Why was it named Pace? And, you know, all those things. So those were the pieces that started to come together as, as the book finally came together. And I think what finally pushed me over the edge in terms of it being a book is I asked from the National Archives for a copy of the battalion daily duty logs. I remember those from when I was in the Army and I had to call in and, and they'd fill them out. And it turns out the artillery unit at Pace 
was very artillery people like to keep records. They have to. They're supposed to where they fire it. The pilots, you know, those guys, they don't care. The infantry guys, they're action artillery people. Artillery yeah. pilot. Yeah. Okay, I see the, uh, the fight already starting. And what they had is almost an hour-by-hour hour record. And there are a couple of things that caught my eye. One was that they were told, this is while the base was, was under siege by the North Vietnamese, to develop a contingency plan to spike the guns, that's a term for making them inoperable, and get out of there as fast as they can, if they could. And that same log had reports like uh, 600 North Vietnamese soldiers spotted south of Pace and all that. I'm going, wow, you know, there's some heavy stuff going on down there. So that's, that's kind of what, what got me into it. And also, as I got on with it and found out more and more about what happened there, because one of the first things I wanted to find out was, is the unit that allegedly was involved in the mutiny, which was an infantry unit, what was their history? Was this a, a unit that had a history of being a bunch of goof-offs and troublemakers and stuff before then? Did, once they defied their commanders, did it get worse? And what I found out instead was this is a veteran unit, and it was a very good unit with a good record before, both before and after. So why would they be any different mm -hmm. while they were there? And I started to find some mitigating circumstances. And I think that's something that you cover as well in your book, because you're talking about the end of the Vietnam War as well, uh, one of the, the last military action of the Vietnam War. That's correct. This was the last American military action of the Vietnam War, not against the Vietnamese. It was against the Khmer Rouge, but the same war from our perspective. Mm -hmm. And did you, I mean, what he's describing about the exposure of um, the military people at the time, this is the different because this was, they had taken hostage a, a, a boat that was not a military boat. Is that right? That's correct. The Khmer Rouge had boarded and seized the uh, container ship SS Maguez, taken the crew hostage. Uh, we thought they had taken them onto a small uh, island named Tang, Kotang, uh, Ko being Khmer for island. And President Ford said, get them back. We don't want to have another uh, Pueblo incident. Uh, and uh, the people that were going to get them back were Marines who were not anywhere near at the time. Uh, they had to be flown from Okinawa to uh, Utapau Royal Thai Naval Base. And as it turned out, there were two Air Force H-53 heavy lift helicopter squadrons in Thailand, uh, to one of which I was assigned. Mm -hmm. And we brought our helicopters down from northeastern Thailand to Utapau in southeastern Thailand, and then shuttled the Marines onto the island. Okay. Some of Bill's comments really struck a, a responsive chord because uh, as the artillery folks and the infantry, we and the Marines did things very differently. We had never worked with the Marines before. We Air Force pe helicopter people had never had a assault helicopter operation. Uh, there was a considerable amount of misunderstanding within the chain of command. Uh, that having been said, we worked together rather effectively. Now, it's both for both of you, for both of this. This was published in 95, your book, A Very Short War, right? right? And this was published in uh, 2011, although you wrote an article that I think preceded, um, I know it preceded it, but I think presaged it in the idea that you were covering some of the same ground in 2008, mm -hmm. um, a minor rebellion. Mm -hmm. So there's a long time between the actions that you were involved in or were interested in and what happened here. Tell me about, as writers, the way that you sort of approached that and worked through that long span of time to when the times that you, mm -hmm. you published these books. What was that? Well, in my case, I was a trained historian when this went down. I missed the operation by one helicopter. Uh, it was a very controversial operation. There were many missteps uh, on the part of the chain of command. It was obviously going to be controversial. Uh, I was concerned to gather records so that I could at some point document what happened 
to attach the proper share of credit and blame to, to the young helicopter crewmen, and for that matter, the Marines and some of the uh, AC-130 gunship people. So you were at the time collecting the, the information. I, I collected that, it. The smoke was still hanging in the air, <laughs> and I was interviewing people. <laughs> that, doesn't records. that get you in trouble in the military when you're uh, collecting material like that during it just happened, and you're not in an MP or something like no, that? No, no, actually not, because the stuff that I was collecting that turned out to be most valuable was unclassified, like flight records, like your artillery mm-hmm. records. We kept a... a, a record in the aircraft in which we recorded two five minutes when we took off when we landed who we took on who we put off now those are normally destroyed after i think 90 days uh, as it turns out the timeline in the official history was warped because the author based it on a reel-to-reel tape it was very controversially as i as i say and various agencies listened to this tape so long that it stretched so the time's no longer correlated, <laughs> and having collected uh, a couple of young lieutenants' record of these these flight record logs, the, the mm-hmm. Form 780 for those that are into this, I was able to readjust the time log and uh, give credit where credit was due. Now, you had a different mm-hmm. sort of thing, because you come back, you're looking into mm-hmm. other um, records. What was the experience for you of gathering the records? You were six months back. Is that when you began gathering, or is that just when you started reading? Well, I did, I, and I still have it somewhere. Actually, and I'm, my wife says I'm a pack rat, and I guess this would prove <laughs> When I read that Washington Post story, I clipped it and mm-hmm. saved it, kind of as a, you know, it just, it jumped at me. But, you know, then I wanted to go back to school. I got on on that, and then I started working for a living, so it wasn't like I could pursue this. So I'd, I'd do it off and on, and I'd be interested, and I'd collect something, and then I, and other things would happen, and then it would go on. And I think what probably five or six years ago is I realized at some point that there is a story here, and I wrote that um, article you mentioned, A Minor Rebellion, first as kind of a test to see mm-hmm. could I write something that people would want to read and, and do about that. And once I got uh, felt good about that, I said, you know, there is a book here. Well, um, that's uh, a segue for me into I'm curious about your sort of emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. Because when you clip something like that, it isn't probably clipping it saying, yay. You know, mm-hmm. this is something that I'm, I'm really interested in mm-hmm. because it's it's an emotional high point mm-hmm. for me. Uh, you keep it that long because you disagree with it. You're you're mm-hmm. upset with it. You're, you want to prove it wrong. Mm-hmm. And in both of these books, it, it seems to me that that's part of what may be motivating you. Um, and to say, let me get the real story. Let me get the story that isn't encapsulated in this clipping. Let me get the story about this that isn't being shown somewhere else that you bring, you know, history is the, uh, the writing of history seems to me to be about the filling in of holes mm-hmm. in the records. And that's what both of these are. Um, so uh, let, let me disagree just a little bit. I actually thought the reporter did a good job with that article. And in fact, I told him that when I interviewed him, I was able to track him down. But what it was stuff I found out as I was going through and afterwards, part of which was a book written by Richard Boyle, mm-hmm. who is the man who reported the the mutiny story, or gave the Le Monde, the French newspaper, the story that got reported as a mutiny. And in fact, he called it a mutiny in his book. But even at that, it didn't make me angry. It made me frustrated a little bit. The emotion originally that started me with this was just curiosity. And it also, I had a sense, because when I got back, I really wasn't sure what we had accomplished over there mm-hmm. and what the meaning of all that was. And the, to me, the emotional part of this book, especially after I started talking to, to veterans and, and that, was recognizing that there was something we were fighting for, but it wasn't the broader 
political objectives, which were kind of muddled, we were fighting for each other. And that is an honorable thing to do. You know, and I, I, I understand now, that, to me, one of the things that really brought that home to me, and, and I can say this with, with Joe here as a pilot, the same guys who initially refused to go on, on patrol two times where in both cases, when helicopters crashed in that area or were shot down without orders, went out in a very dangerous mission to rescue those pilots. And the reason they did it is they know those pilots were sticking their neck out for them, and they would do the same for them. Okay, so that talks about your reactions to it, which are, are clear. Tell me about, for you, the emotional reaction of writing about a war in which you had been a participant. Well, once more, Bill's comments struck some real resonant chords. Uh, the operation was a controversial one. The chain of command did not cover itself with glory. Overall, it was a success. But the usual image that we see in operations of this sort is that the commanders give their orders, the subordinates execute the orders, and all works out well. In this case, uh, there was a terrible intelligence uh, failure at the beginning. The orders were not always uh, relevant to what was going on. And indeed, uh, disaster was averted. We almost lost a, a reinforced Marine company. Uh, disaster was averted by independent decisions made by first lieutenants, uh, sergeants, uh, you name it. And uh, I was aware of that. I knew these guys. I knew what had happened. And I wanted to, to see that documented. And there's a certain amount of emotional heat there. Mm -hmm. Now, so you've got, um, both of you have been doing, have done, rather, first-person interviews for the two books. Um, tell me what that was like, um, knowing that you were going to write about it, for you knowing um, the people involved, um, coming back to interview them, what I assume is years later, mm -hmm. to say, tell me about what you recollect about this, what was it like for you? Well, in my case, my initial interviews were done in a little notebook that I kept in the leg of my pocket of my flight suit right after the fact. Mm -hmm. And it was all very fragmentary. Your memory in combat is very disjointed. There's time compression. Uh, and I couldn't tell you what connected to what. I simply wrote it down and said, this is what so-and-so said. Set it aside for uh, seven years, eight years, until I got to the Naval War College and I had time to write it up. And then I was able to go into the archives and I had read the official history and I was able to connect things and take these isolated comments that people had made to me at the time uh, and I should say this, uh, I was struck by the candor that these people uh, exhibited when I, I was asking them what happened, when and where. They're probably not used to speaking to a historian right after the fact. Well, that that's true, but then I was one of their squadron mates, so it, it was a, a little of this and a little of that. And they were brutally honest, brutally candid, uh, and when, when they didn't remember, they'd say so. And it turned out that they, the, the memories, while the times didn't always match up, they were remarkably good. Okay. You got to check it against the documents, right? Or against the tape in this case, because that's an interesting thing for you as a historian to say. A lot of times you don't have first-person access to this; you have right. much later, and um, that has got to be an interesting experience for you to discuss with your students. To say yeah. most of the time you're doing archival, you're looking at what you assume to be factual data, but in this case, it is you're saying brutally honest. But part of me reads that as they're also upset, or they're still stinging from um, the difficulties. Uh, I mean, I would have not been in combat; I would be terrified um, afterwards still. You, you, you've hit all the right issues. That's absolutely correct. Okay. And, and the historian has to be aware of that in conducting and using the interview. Okay. Well, I want to thank both of you, both for writing the books and for the service that you have uh, done in various capacities. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you for being here on Writer's Talk. Great. Well, thank you for having us. Sure. My pleasure. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. 
That was OSU professors William Shakurdi and John F. Gilmartin, Jr. For more information about our guests, visit us at writerstalk.org. Now, Doug Dangler talks to Bradley Zweig, writer of the stage script for Disney's Phineas and Ferb, the best live tour ever, which will be in Columbus with Kappa on Friday, November 4th. Bradley Zweig has been nominated for four Emmy Awards for his work on Sid the Science Kid and has now written the stage script for Phineas and Ferb, the best live tour ever. Welcome to Writer's Talk, Bradley. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Well, I have to say there's a lot to live up to in the name of this show, the best live tour ever. Did you get to choose that subtitle, or did you just have to write a show that fulfilled it? We actually wrote the whole show, and I always put title TBD, because <laughs> I never know what kind of title we'll actually want to do. And then someone threw out that title, which I thought was very funny, because it's the only live show they've done, which mm-hmm. is why we've called it the best one. Okay. I was taking it as the best live tour ever for anyone at any time, because there was a colon right after Phineas and Ferb, but maybe it was an apo- a comma, and I, I missed that. Uh, yeah, I think it's supposed to be uh, <laughs> referencing ourselves. Okay. This is our very one and only one we've ever done. All right, great. I have two kids that watch the show, but for those unfortunate souls who haven't yet seen it, I'll, I'll recap it. Phineas and Ferb follows Phineas Flynn and Ferb Fletcher as they have adventures during their summer break and sort of inadvertently irritate their sister who always wants to catch them in the act of doing things that she believes they shouldn't, but she never does. So it's been renewed for its fourth season on the Disney Channel. And tell me about how you got involved with transferring the animated television characters onto the stage for the best live tour ever. Uh, well, I should start by saying the creators are uh, Swampy Marsh and Dan Pavemeyer, who are the true geniuses. Um, they, I was brought onto the project because I work a lot in television, but I also work a lot uh, doing stage productions. I write um, Ringling Bows and Barn and Bailey Circus, uh, and I also have done some other live stage tours for Disney. So I was really familiar with that genre. And sometimes television writers don't always translate so well to the stage and, and vice versa. So it's sort of a fun fit. Um, Alana Feld, who's one of the producers from Feld Entertainment, uh, has known me for years. I've written a lot of shows for Feld Entertainment. And she knew I loved the show. And I think she knew my my sense of humor was was very much in line with the show. So it's sort of a good fit. And she called and said, what do you think about doing the show? And I said, oh, my gosh, I love that show. And it's perfect for a big theatrical production. What makes it perfect for a big theatrical production? Well, you know, for um, the difference between TV and stage, you know, obviously is TV, you can get really intimate and you can have characters do, you know, they can roll their eyes if they're trying to sigh or something like that, or like really small things you can do comedy wise on TV. But in on the stage, everything has to be huge and big. And Phineas and Ferb already does big, huge silly, crazy, fun production numbers in their show. So I thought, wow, this is perfect for the stage because it's a really big show with, with tons of dancing already. And, you know, I didn't, it wasn't like you had to take something that's usually a very small, quiet show and make it big. It already sort of has a big feel to it. So I thought it was perfect for the stage. How did you interact with the creators of the show? You already mentioned uh, Dan Pavemeyer and Jeff Swampy Marsh. What what kind of directions did they give you? Did they tell you anything about it, or were you given a pretty blank slate? I was given a blank slate, 
And then I kind of developed the concept with Alana Feld and Kenneth Feld, who are the producers. And we went in to basically pitch it to Dan and Swampy. And I said, hey, this is my idea for the show. It's kind of your baby, so let me know what you think. And they really, they liked it. And they said, oh, that sounds like fun. You should go for it. And then they started offering a bunch of advice. And when I got into the actual script, I was more than happy to send it to them and say, what do you guys think? Am I on the right track? What would you change? And they were really great. We just kind of went back and forth. And they, you know, they helped a lot. It was, they were great to work with. And uh, Dan has this great line that he he said, you know, I feel like with Phineas and Ferb, it's like we made toys and then we give them to people and say, play with our toys and then you make up your own games with the toys. And that's exactly how I felt. Okay. So it was it was great. And it I've read that it took a long time for them to get uh, Phineas and Ferb greenlighted by a company. In this case, it was Disney. It's something like 16 years. So that's a really interesting background that I think they must bring to it and a long time attachment. To it, so it's very interesting to see them as creators and writers being able to give that over to other people. Yeah, no, they're great, and you know, as a writer, since it's not my project, you know, I have my own projects I do, but this is one where I'm brought on to say, "Hey, create this into a live production and, and make it true to the show, but bring something more than the show has to offer." So, you know, it's something different. So I was nervous. You know, it's it's. Uh, it's a big responsibility, and I think those guys are so funny. The show's so funny. I wanted to make sure that I was at least as funny as the show, and you know, you know, did a good job with it. Um, but it was fun. It was really, really fun. It was a great challenge. Well, tell me about a little bit about the show without giving it all away or giving the main secrets away. What is it about? What is it doing in the show, and how is it say different from the television show? Uh, well, you know, the biggest challenge that from the very start, you know, was presented to me was it's an animated show. We want to do a live stage show with, you know, those big walk around characters. Mm -hmm. So the show is really sophisticated, as you know, and it's very smart and self-aware. So how do you create a show that, you know, still feels like the original TV show? And I think once I cracked that nut, the rest sort of fell into place. Um, and I kind of took the idea from, uh, Purple Rose of Cairo, and Jeff Daniels actually walks through the screen. Right. Yeah. So I thought, let's start the show with our animated characters, and they notice the audience and go, uh, Ferb, did you ever notice that audience there before? And they literally run up to the screen, try and break through it, and then they find a, a, a portal. I won't give it away. They find a way to actually get onto the stage. And then all the characters start coming through, so it actually makes sense. It becomes part of the story as opposed to, hey, now we're walk-around characters, but are used to seeing us animated. We just... It kind of got woven into the storyline. Okay. And when you approach something like this uh, with Phineas and Ferb as, I think, well-defined characters, you also have all of their secondary characters and a lot of recurring gags that you get to do. What one or two were the ones that you really enjoyed or looked forward to doing the most uh, for the things that you got to bring forward? What were the hallmarks of Phineas and Ferb that you really liked to do? Uh, well, I must say, writing for Dr. Doofenshmirtz is <laughs> great. He is such a fun character. He's so, I mean, he's, he can sing and he dances. He can be a silly character, but he's also, I mean, he just, he's ludicrous. And I loved writing for him. And it was really fun. I've seen the show with an audience, you know, a few times now. And they really, I think, appreciate that Doofenshmirtz comes off as very much himself. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a lot of fun. I love Baljeet and Buford. 
and really worked hard to make them their own little pair. Um, you know, Candace is great. She's a big role in the show. I think all the secondary characters are hilarious, actually. But Doofenshmirtz is probably the most fun to write for. One of the recurring gags on the show is that Phineas and Fur build these incredible adventures uh, and have these giant adventures every day. And one fan of the show, Dan Michalko, the manager of Central Ohio's NPR station, WCBE, asked me to ask you, how do Phineas and Ferb get so much done in a day? What's their time management secret? <laughs> um, I believe it's a 22-minute block of television always helps. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's, uh, that's the, the whole gig. Is it just only allowing yourself 22 minutes to get any one project done is the secret from <laughs> Phineas and Ferb. You've worked on a long list of children's television shows, Tom and Jerry Tales, Brandy and Mr. Whiskers, Crypto the Superdog, Jobs for Dogs. What has been an essential lesson you've learned about writing, working on all of these shows? Wow, an essential lesson. What a good question. Um, do you know, I end up writing a lot. I, I ended up doing uh, kids in family entertainment, uh, not on purpose, almost by accident. I started out doing sketch comedy. And um, the stuff that I wrote happened to work for kids, which shows you how intellectual I am. Uh, so I just kind of went with it. And next thing I know, I was writing, you know, crazy shows for kids and it was working. And I, I bounced back and forth between television and, um, you know, Ringling Brothers, as I said, and, and, and things like Phineas and Ferb. Um, and I've worked a lot of crazy TV shows like Yo Gabba Gabba and stuff like that. They're that just, you know, really fun things for me to do. And I don't notice that I'm doing kids entertainment. I just write what I think is funny and I guess it works. You know, I, I noticed Yo Gabba Gabba on your resume and you were a story editor for it. And I thought that must be a very unusual job for Yo Gabba Gabba. Um, what, what was your job as a story editor for that show? What did you have to do with what seems to me almost chaos? Um, yeah. How do you corral that? Well, story editor is a term used in animation that is another way of saying the head writer. Mm -hmm. uh, so really on that show, I worked with the creators of the show, Christian and Scott. And, um, you know, yeah, chaos is a good word for it. Um, that's a unique little show <laughs> that, that um, I was really fun to write, too. Actually, my second child was just born, so I was totally sleep deprived. Maybe that explains a lot of the mm -hmm. show. Yeah, I, I think it does. I, I remember watching that when my kids were very little. And I think sleep deprivation would really enable the understanding of the show and the viewing of it. One final thing uh, that really fascinated me, you're part of the creative team for, uh, or at least for the 136th Barnum and Bailey show. Uh, after years of working with children's programming, or perhaps this was all happening at the same time, how do you make the switch to something like that? Which to me, uh, I'm curious about what kind of scripting goes on. I mean, you, you say, and then the dancing bear comes on and then the clowns come out and, throw things or I haven't been to a circus in a long time. This perhaps shows uh, how long it's been, but how do you script something like that? How do you plan it? What goes into it? Uh, yeah, you should check out the show. It's really, it's, it's really fun. This is actually, I'm working on my fourth tour for Ringling Brothers right now. We're about to start rehearsal at the end of the month. And um, the 136th edition was the very first one I did. And that really all goes back to, um, you know, Kenneth Feld, who was the producer, brought on his eldest daughter, uh, Nicole Feld. And 
you know, she had this vision to update the circus and just not, you know, kind of reimagine what the circus could be. And we did more of a storyline in the show and updated some video elements and the music and costumes and really just sort of reimagine what the circus could be. And I give a lot of the credit to the Felds for, I was part of the creative team. So, um, you know, it was, it was their direction and I was happy to be part of that team. Um, but yeah, we, we do storylines and all kinds of crazy stuff now. Do the performers get to be in on that creative process and tell you things like, here's what I do best as, uh, in in my role as, say, a clown, here's what I would like to see acted out for this, or is it all, does that come from the writers and then it goes out to them? You know, it's all collaborative. You know, ideas start from all over the place. The Felds have ideas, the director will bring ideas, I'll have ideas, and we might go to one group, let's say, the teeterboard act, and say, you know, it would be really fun to turn you guys into pirates. And we could bring in another teeterboard act. You could do like a competition of pirates competing. What do you think? And they'll kind of go with it and say, oh, yeah, we could also do this part and that part. So it's it's really collaborative. I mean, the circus is, there's people from like 50 countries all over the world working together with, you know, a huge creative team and with the Felds kind of, you know, producing, keeping everyone, you know, on the same page and, and giving their direction. It, it's Truly a humongous collaborative project. Bradley Zweig, I thank you very much for talking to us today, and we'll hope that everybody can make it to Phineas and Ferb, the best live tour ever, which will be in Columbus November 4th with Kappa. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you so much. This is fun. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. Special thanks to our guests, William Shakurdi, John F. Gilmartin Jr., and Bradley Zweig. For more info about our guests, visit us at writerstalk.org. Join us next time as OSU alumnus Dara Naragi joins fellow graphic novelists Ken Epstein and Max Inc. to discuss writing for comics. Until then, this is Brendan Telerik. Keep writing.